You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to talk to us about one of the new machine learning toolkits, right? So there's a lot of different machine learning toolkits out there. And of course, there's been a proliferation of various deep learning toolkits, including TensorFlow and Torch and lots of different things. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how to do large-scale machine learning and large-scale computation on a big cluster of machines. And one of the interesting and exciting tools for that is something called Spark. Spark grew out of the AMP Lab at Berkeley, which is this really interesting collaborative project to build new kinds of systems for computer science. And specifically what Spark is about is trying to do data processing on MapReduce type architectures um, in ways that are a lot faster than kind of the traditional approach with something like Hadoop. So let me explain what I mean by that. So uh, big sort of data processing jobs generally happen via MapReduce, where essentially computation happens on a cluster of machines by spreading out computation to a bunch of, you know, basically breaking up a data set, spreading it out to a bunch of mappers, having something kind of local happen on those mappers, and then collapsing it back together in a reduced step, and then writing back to disk. And so a, a mode of computation has been to chain these kinds of things together to perform, um, to perform different kinds of uh, relatively simple linear data processing. Uh, people have come up with fancy ways to do it and to apply them iteratively, and, and so on, but ultimately it has this kind of like very um, sort of coherent, like read from disk, do some stuff, uh, distribute in a distributed way, collapse back right back to disk. And then what's, what Spark tries to do is really generalize that sort of computational concept to allow for a lot of other things, and in particular not require this step of writing things back to disk, and also allow for fancier types of, of computational graphs. And, um, and the idea is then uh, that this is particularly well suited to things like uh, machine learning, where you want to take an algorithm that you uh, care about and you can kind of write it in this uh, little language essentially that Spark has, which consists of a lot of things that might be kind of familiar, like still has maps, you know, apply this operation to every one of our data or filter, you know, remove some of our data based on some criterion um, and different things like that, but then ultimately allows you to store a lot of this stuff in memory. And so it can be a lot faster than traditional MapReduce, and it allows fancier kinds of topologies. The central idea is this, this, uh, this kind of cool thing called a uh, resilient distributed data set, or RDD. And the idea with this is that you can sort of store this, this data set in memory and uh, across many different machines. It's kind of read-only. And then what you're doing is transforming these RDDs step-by-step step and... Um, they're resilient because they know how they were constructed. If something happened and the machine fell over or something or there was some corruption, then um, every little piece kind of knows how it was generated. And so you could go back and regenerate it if you need to. Um, and this is a very kind of neat idea for uh, doing distributed and reliable computations. And so it's really been sort of making a splash in, in the way people have been thinking about different kinds of, of uh, uh, distributed algorithms. It's implemented in the Java virtual machine. So like one of the ways it works is to sit on top of like existing Hadoop clusters, but you can also run it in a standalone way. You can write to it with Scala or Java or Python and different things. So it's kind of an interesting balance between familiar computational sort of um, abstractions for doing different machine learning and things like that, while also supporting you know, relatively sort of seamless distributed computation. Um, as long as you don't, as long as you sort of realize that what you're specifying is transformations of data and not sort of actual linear computations necessarily, then it lets you 
maybe run, uh, you know, write a piece of code that then can run on sort of hundreds or thousands of machines without writing any sort of communication code yourself. And then on top of that, it has some really interesting new tools that are sort of increasing, you know, in complexity and power. Uh, MLlib, which is a, a toolkit of relatively, of, of like a reasonable set of basic machine learning tools. Um, you know, if you want to run k-means clustering or something like that, it'll implement it for you. It doesn't have a lot of fancy sort of things, but it has like, you know, some simple matrix factorization, some simple topic modeling, things like that. And uh, and then it also has, and this is the thing that, that I find really interesting to think about, is uh, something called GraphX, which is basically a graph processing library. And so if what you'd like to do is think about um, different kinds of graph structured data, where rather than um, something like, uh, you know, just big matrices, you're really thinking about vertices that maybe in the ways that things connect to each other, then it allows you to write abstractions that are vertex centric. This is a really fun sort of thing to wrap your head around from a programming point of view, if you're really used to kind of imperative programming and or even functional programming for that matter it's kind of like map reduce on a graph and so if you imagine you know the kind of the mantra is think like a vertex you have some data at a vertex and there's some data that lives on the edges that connect you to other vertices and maybe a big graphical model or maybe a social network or uh, or even sort of uh, you know web pages or something like that then you can think in terms of performing sort of mapping steps where you do something to, uh, to each one of your neighbor's data and then reduce steps where you're sort of collecting that and the Spark Graphics library provides really interesting abstractions for this. Um, one of them is this kind of cool thing called aggregate messages, which literally does that for you. Um, and possibly making interesting scheduling decisions across potentially thousands of machines. It also implements something called the Pregol API, which is kind of like a version of sort of this message aggregation on the graph, but runs until, you know, but it sort of automatically runs it until it converges to something. So it's, it's a natural way to think about a lot of different kinds of dynamic programming or, you know, optimization type problems. So Spark is a really interesting kind of uh, new adventure. I, I really like a lot of the abstractions and I think it's, it's going to ultimately impact a lot of the way people build systems. Right now, I think it's a little bit you know, it can be a little frustrating to use, to be totally honest. It's because it sits on the Java virtual machine, it uh, tends to be a huge memory hog. So you're, you think you're storing a little 32-bit integer. It should only be sort of, uh, you know, four bytes. But instead, it turns out that it's like 100 bytes because it has all of this other sort of type information attached to it. Um, and, you know, there are good reasons for all that to exist. But what it means is that if you if you have interesting large data sets, they're going to be even larger than you thought they were going to be. And, um, and you can very rapidly run these things out of memory. And, and to be honest, the, mem the, uh, you know, the, the Spark sort of error diag diagnostics are a little, bit, a little bit hard to figure out. It's sort of, a lot of things turn out to be out of memory errors, but they're sort of deep in code that's difficult to find. And if it's a spread across thousands of machines, then that may be extra hard to find. But I think it's a, a really cool project and it has a lot of contributors and it's it's started at Berkeley, but now it's part of the Apache project. And so it's under a really nice flexible license and uh, it looks like a kind of an active community, including some some industrial partners that, that seem to provide a lot of support for it. So it's, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's worth uh, definitely worth checking out. Personally, I'd love to hear more examples of how people are, uh, are using this in production. Um, you know, as we've been I've been sort of messing with this quite a bit. You know, there's there's definitely some um, some crufty bits to it that make it seem like it might be challenging to deploy um, for big real world data. I'd love to hear more about, you know, maybe from our listeners about how they're using how they're using Spark in production. You can tweet at us at tlkngmchns, and we'll have more about Spark up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Thank you.
This week's listener question on talking machines comes from Stephanie. She says, I've been to the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference a number of times, but I've never been to ICML. This will be my first year. How are the conferences different, and what can we expect at ICML this year? This is a great question, and, and this is, I think, in some ways all about kind of scientific culture. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people kind of want to pretend like scientific culture doesn't exist and it doesn't shape the way that we think about problems. But um, I think it, it's, it's a huge thing, and it's important to actually sort of say things out loud and, and consider their consequences. And, uh, and NIPS versus ICML is, is a really interesting thing. Um, and I should say, personally, I like NIPS a lot more. Um, and it's not because of the quality of the work. I love I love the papers in, in both, but I'd like to attend NIPS more. So let me sort of give a little overview of the differences in, in the conferences themselves, and then we can talk about how that works out in terms of kind of what work tends to appear. So NIPS is a big single-track conference. It has, for a long time, been in the same place over and over again. When I say single-track, what I mean by that is that there are, uh, it doesn't tend to split up into subsessions. If you have a, um, you know, if you get a talk like at, at NIPS, then it's going to be to like 2,000 people. Um, whereas ICML is multi-track, which means that there's a lot of little rooms. Historically, most papers that are accepted at, at ICML also have talks. And I would say that in some ways, that's the main difference. Organizationally, there's also some differences, which is that NIPS has been um, sort of run by a, um, by the NIPS board, which is a, uh, and in particular by uh, Terry Sanoski and, and friends. And so it has a sort of a, a lot more sort of um, uh, institutional inertia around kind of what matters and what NIPS should be like and what um, the way things should operate. And this is, also, um, this is also great because it tends to be very, very well run. Um, and you really kind of know what you're, what you're going to get. And this is also why it tends to be in the same place. And this is also why historically it's been in places that, um, that have been ski locations because, uh, the NIPS board likes to ski and they have a lot of power over where this is going to go. Whereas ICML has, you know, so there is the, uh, International Machine Learning Society, but as far as I can tell, it has very, it has like, does not involve itself very aggressively, if at all, in the actual running of ICML. I think it picks the sort of, it picks the program chairs and then they sort of run the whole thing. And then there's like local arrangements chairs. And, you know, I think it's, I think there's a big, you know, there's some kind of non-trivial process in determining where it's going to be. And a lot of, there's a lot of different stakeholders and somebody has to be willing to do all the work to have it in a particular location. Mm -hmm. But for example, ICML has like a business meeting. And it seems, as far as I can tell, that kind of anybody can go to that and voice their opinions about how ICML should be run and what works and what doesn't. And so it's a, it's a much more sort of democratic thing, whereas NIPS doesn't seem to care very much what anybody thinks, uh, for the most part, um, outside the board. And, uh, and, and like I said, so that can be good, right? Because benign dictatorships can lead to extremely well-run, coherent things, uh, whereas democracies can lead to crazy, incoherent things. Um, but it's, you know, there's kind of a difference in, in taste there. So... Um, so I happen to like NIPS because I like, because I, I feel very confident about the sort of the, the set of friends that I will see when I go there. And I really like the, um, I really like the single track format because I like to hear about crazy things that are not really exactly what I'm working on. Um, so I like the sort of forced exposure to a lot of random, to a lot of other areas. Whereas, you know, at a single track conference, what you will tend to do is go to the session this is about the thing that you care most about or that one of your students is presenting in or whatever. And so then you'll hear about variations of the same things you're already thinking about. And that is valuable too, but you're gonna read those papers no matter what. 
Whereas there are some crazy things that you will not necessarily read, but you might hear about it in, uh, at NIPS otherwise. So I really kind of like that. Um, I like that breadth. I think also NIPS has a tendency to, it has a little bit of, NIPS papers are a little bit different in that they're, they're, there's a little bit more sort of like cool kid aspect to it. Whereas ICML, historically, I think, and you know, this is a controversial statement, but I think historically ICML sort of values sort of technical merit above hmm. everything else, you know, modulo all the noise in the reviewing process everywhere. Uh, and um, whereas NIPS, you know, the papers, you kind of expect them to be a little bit of a little bit flashier. Like you have to have a little bit of that extra, a little bit sexier, a little bit sexier stuff going in. And, um, and, and this may arise from, it has historically had more overlap than ICML with uh, theoretical neuroscience and cognitive science. Hmm. That is to say that you're more likely to run into somebody like a Liam Paninsky or a, uh, or somebody, somebody who sort of straddles, theoretical neuroscience and machine learning, they're kind of a little bit more likely to go to NIPS, I think, than they are to go to ICML. Uh, Same thing with like, uh, you know, like a Josh Tenenbaum who sort of straddles uh, machine learning and and cognitive science. I think they're more likely to go to NIPS than ICML. Um, On the other hand, ICML has tended to be co-located with historically often with conferences like Colt, so which is a, the learning theory conference or one of the learning theory conferences. And so then it has had to, so it, it has had kind of people at the other end of the spectrum who are maybe sit between uh, machine learning and theory. So it's, uh, so, and I, I think that kind of propagates through the, through the conference in different ways. I think NIPS kind of, because of the single track nature of it has been, um, you know, has, has always been, I think, it, I think of it as being a little bit more social And maybe this is because it was kind of, it's always been, tends to go to the same place, then people sort of like really know what to expect and they know where to meet people and they know what their local restaurants are. And and there's some interesting kind of like, uh, you know, you kind of get some like. It becomes a little neighborhood. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Also, and this is a really silly reason, but I think a lot of people like, like Nips because it's, um, because it kicks off winter break. Like I have always like like as a grad student for me, you know, I was in England and then uh, and then I was I would come home like for winter break, and Nips would be in Vancouver, which is this amazing city, and then the workshops would be up in Whistler, which is like really beautiful, and you drive this like Sea to Sky Highway, and you know I'd do some Christmas shopping in Vancouver, and then I would like stay in North America, and so like going to Nips and sort of walking through the like Canadian immigration. Uh, you know, at the Vancouver airport was like, you know, it's this beautiful, like exposed wood, like, you know, giant moose head, like, you know, I don't know. It's like very, it's like very Vancouver. And, uh, and it was just like magical for me. And it, at this moment where I was sort of, at this moment in life where I was sort of, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a scientist. And this is all conflated together for me personally. And so uh, NIPS has a kind of nostalgia for me that ICML mm. has never had. Mm-hmm. So this is a very personal sort of explanation. But I know that there's also a set of other people kind of at least within my cohort that feel the same way. And this is why we kind of think of it as being kind of the family conference for us. Um, so, and anybody will have an opinion where that is, that is conflated with all of these things about how they, how they got introduced to these conferences and who they were hanging out with and where they were in their lives when they first went. Um, so, uh, so you should take all of my opinions on this with a grain of salt. (laughs) And NIPS used to be a relatively small conference, right? Compared to how big it is now. Yeah. I mean, both of them, 
did. I mean, they've both grown in massively in the, uh, um, you know, over the last several years. I mean, just really have grown a huge amount. And, uh, and also the, the like, um, you know, corporate influence and, um, yeah, they, they've become very different kinds of things than they were 10 years ago or much less 20 years ago. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. And if you're attending ICML, come by and say hi. Today's guest on Talking Machines is Sinead Williamson of the University of Texas at Austin. And when we spoke with her at NIPS, we asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? Well, I started off uh, wanting to be a particle physicist, uh, went to grad school in high-energy physics, but quickly realized that was a terrible idea and uh, jumped ship into machine learning. Um, Wait, you can't just stop there. You yeah, need to no, explain you more. To- <laughs> so because, you know, you and I met right as you were making this as, as you were thinking about becoming a machine learning person, I think. This is um, true. Um, uh, and you were thinking about where to go to grad school. Um, and I was a grad student also at the time. Um, but I, I don't remember the part about you having been a particle physicist at that point. So that when we met, I was a very junior particle physicist. Um, were you at Cambridge? No, I was at um, UCL. That's University College London. Yes, sorry. What about, was it that machine learning was so attractive that you were like, I have to go to this? Or were you just like, particle so, physics, I'm done. Well, my before I was a physicist, I, my undergraduate degree was in engineering. I very quickly realized that I am not good at building things. All my bridges fell down. Whenever I tried to sort of something, I would get the shakes so bad, it would be a disaster. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so I ended up in the information engineering side of things, doing more, um, so my master's thesis was in lexicographic uh, text analysis, uh, matrix factorization type stuff. At the time, I harbored this um, deep burning in my soul for pure science um, and a search for truth. Uh, so I did a summer internship at CERN, which is the big particle accelerator in Switzerland. Um, I loved it. It was all big science and it was exciting. So I applied for um, PhD programs and then realized that behind all of the excitement of big science, there are a million graduate students working on a tiny, tiny little bit of this. And there wasn't the space for innovation and coming up with cool new ideas that there was in the um, field that I had left. So... I went back, spoke to my tail between my uh, legs, spoke to my master's advisor and said, yeah, I want to come back into the fold. Um, And he then put me in touch with some people doing machine learning. And I quietly went back to machine learning, which is where I met you when I was interviewing. I see. Okay. And and then you ended up joining Zubin's group. I did. Yes. I spent... Uh, a couple of years, very lost, trying out a variety of different uh, ideas in machine learning, and then eventually landed on Bayesian nonparametrics, uh, which is the area that I did my PhD in and still mostly work in. Uh, realized that suddenly I'd found something that I found really interesting and wanted to keep doing, and I did. Uh, then... After I graduated, I went and did a postdoc with Eric Jing at CMU, Carnegie Mellon, um, 
continuing working on Bayesian non-parametrics, getting more into scalable inference, uh, parallelization of MCMC algorithms, and then uh, made the jump into a statistics department where I am now uh, for my current job, where I'm doing basically still scalable MCMC, Bayesian non-parametrics, but branching out into a few more applications as I get the chance to interact with people in different departments. Cool. And the stats department is actually inside the School of Business at UT, is that right? So it's actually, um, I'm actually a joint appointment between the School of Business and the stats department. When I was hired, we didn't officially have a stats department, um, but we had a lot of statisticians who gradually over the years um, formed a statistics department with a lot of hard work that went on before I got there. So a lot of the statisticians at UT are actually in the business school because that's where, they that, got that's where give money for statisticians, I guess. So <laughs> the business school has generally been very supportive of statistics in the absence of an actual department. The area that I mostly work in, Bayesian non-parametrics, is one where the wall between the two communities is fairly thin. So um, the machine learning community, or at least a subset of the machine learning community, has really picked up the ideas that the statisticians have come up with and run with them, making them into the basis for more applied algorithms, uh, applied models, coming up with new ways of doing inference, doing um, uh, variational approaches, for example, that are familiar to machine learning background, but uh, more on the edges of the mainstream statistics community. So it's an area where we get to steal all of their math. They get to uh, apply their models to some more interesting structured problems. So it's a good marriage of the two. Tell us why you're excited about Bayesian nonparametrics. I mean, so this is something that you, you know, you're sort of very deeply immersed in and you're, you're sort of one of the leaders of this area. So what is it that gets you excited about it? Like what sort of gets you to work every morning about this? So it's... Um, a very natural, to me, way of thinking about a lot of problems. It mirrors the way we actually experience the world. So in Bayesian nonparametrics, typically you're doing something like clustering or feature selection, and you're assuming, okay, I've seen some clusters before, I've seen some features before, here's a new observation. The odds are it's similar to something that we've seen before. The odds are it's the... Uh, uh, one of the popular groups that we've seen, but there's always a chance that you see something new. So rather than uh, be narrow-minded and assume that our training set has already contained everything about the world we might want to know, it allows you to incorporate um, the unknown, which seems to be a good fit for a lot of real-world problems. It also is... Um, so the side of me that clearly has sought out a job in a statistics department thinks it's very mathematically elegant. There's a lot of uh, very cool mathematics underlying the Bayesian non-parametric framework, which makes it uh, geekily appealing to just work with and try and find out ways of manipulating and re-representing these structures. Can you sort of explain what some of the, the kind of, what's the core idea of Bayesian non-parametrics? People might understand what, being Bayesian is, you know, you represent a posture distribution. But when something is is non-parametric, what is that? 
What does that mean? So the non-parametric is kind of a misnomer. Um, it doesn't mean that there are no parameters in your model. It means kind of the opposite. So when um, in a Bayesian context we talk about a parametric model, we mean one where we know exactly how many parameters there are going to be in advance. So, for example, we have a mixture of K Gaussians. We know that we have K means, K covariances, and some probability of the uh, for clusters. For example, if you wanted to cluster and you, you knew there were exactly, exactly K clusters. Exactly. So um, a non-parametric distribution is one where we have an unbounded number of clusters in our data. So... In a Bayesian setting, we do this by going to the full extreme and assuming that there's infinitely many clusters that are potentially there. So we have a prior that allows there to be infinitely many clusters. However, if we only see a finite number of data points, which we're always only going to see, we're going to still have a clustering behavior. This will concentrate on a smaller, a smaller than n typically number of clusters, but it can choose how many clusters it wants to use, just to anthropomorphize my data there. Um, so as we see more data, we will, in expectation, see more clusters, and the number of clusters or parameters will grow in an unbounded way. How is it possible to set up models with an infinite number of parameters and, and do any kind of scalable inference or even sort of tractable inference on a finite computer? Um. That's definitely one of the challenges, and my recent lines of inquiry are mostly focused on trying to make it a little more tractable. Um, but in the simplest case, if you're imagining doing inference in a uh, mixture of Gaussians, for example, for a clustering problem, if you had a parametric model, then you'd be searching over all possible combinations that you can have for those means of the clusters. But... If you want to go to non-parametric, you can very simply change your algorithm by just allowing the possibility of adding one more in. So it is expanding your state space, but there's a very um, there's typically very straightforward ways of adding an extra cluster by just saying, okay, we've got a new cluster we haven't seen yet. We generally do the best that we can to avoid actually representing any of these giant infinite dimensional structures because obviously we have a finite computer here. So typically we tend to work in with the idea that we have infinite potential clusters, but we don't actually need to worry about what they look like yet until they arrive. So we introduce them as needed rather than keeping all infinitely many clusters in store just in case. I, th I sort of think of your work as being part of a kind of um, third wave of Bayesian nonparametrics within machine learning. So in this case, I mean, there was sort of maybe in the late 90s, people were thinking about um, sort of basic preferential attachment ideas like the Chinese restaurant process. This is a process that allows you to sort of talk about a prior over clusters where um, there's nice analogies to sort of joining. You could imagine uh, the data kind of wanting to join uh, the popular tables in, in uh, sort of the high school lunchroom. Um, and then the second wave really took seriously the ideas that these were sort of just marginal distributions from objects like the Dirichlet process. Um, and then the third wave, and, and I feel like, in, and this is kind of what I 
in some ways associate a lot of your work with, is then saying actually there's a more general class of objects even than these, you know, the Dirichlet process ideas like completely random measures of which now sort of Dirichlet process is a kind of restriction on. And could you sort of maybe explain a little bit about what this broader view has brought to, to machine learning? Absolutely. So um, as Ryan mentioned, a lot of the non-parametric models that we use, the Dirichlet process, but also things like the beta process, the Indian buffet process, even Poisson processes, uh, can be constructed as part of this more general class of models called completely random measures that have been known about for a long time. They're very heavily related to levy processes, which um, people in finance have been using for years to model stochastic processes. I've always thought it was a little bit funny because, you know, to the to the sort of the outside observer, then you think you have a, like a random process, and now we have a completely random process. Um, but uh, so, but what does that actually so mean? that actually means something technical? It, yes, it means something technical. So when we say a random process, we mean the same um, concept of ideas as when we say a random number, um, a random matrix. Completely random means that if we take our process, which in most cases might be, for example, a distribution or a measure, um, if we partition the space which we've got that measure on into any arbitrary partition, then the measures on those subspaces are independent of each other. So the classic example is a Poisson process. We have a um, distribution over points in some space. And if we take any uh, subset of that space, the number of points that we have in that subset is Poisson distributed and is independent of the number of points we would have in um, the next space over. I might just take a quick me minute to sort of explain what the idea of a measure is. So a lot of people you know, encounter uh, integration as a concept. And you can think of integration, you know, you're finding the area under a curve. You can think of that as, you know, coming up with an idea about volume. And so the curve that you define is is giving you, um, is specifying for you how large different sort of pieces are in terms of that volume. And measure theory and measures are a generalization of that idea that makes it a little bit more uh, precise. And so we can talk at a very general level about the measure or the size of, of a set. And so then a random measure, which we often use to um, describe probability distributions in a flexible way, allows us to talk about sort of the random amount of probability mass, maybe that's assigned to something. And then I guess a completely random measure says that actually it doesn't have to sum to one, does it? It, it can be a more general kind of notion of size. It's absolutely. So it um, inherently won't sum to one or be normalized because it um, is making this assumption that being able to see a small part of it doesn't tell you anything about what's happening outside of that small part. So um, if we have a probability measure that's required to sum to one, um, taking like, the volume analogy, which is a much nicer way of describing this than I would have come up with. Um, if you know that um, you have half a liter of water in one bucket and your total amount of water has to sum to one, that tells you something about the water in the next bucket over. It tells you there's not more than half a liter in there. Um, whereas complete randomness 
uh, says we can't make any statements about the amount of water in the next bucket based on the amount that we've seen in this specific location. So we can use them to uh, construct things like probability distributions where we have requirements like sums to one, integrates to one, uh, by normalization. Uh, but there's a lot of neat things that we can do by remembering that before we've pinned it down to a probability measure, we have something that has a lot of inherent independence structure um, that we can make use of in making statements about the uh, underlying structure of the model, but also about um, doing inference in that model, making use of these independencies. Are there any kind of application areas that, that get you excited when you're working on this? Like, you know, when you think about the path between your sort of more theoretical work in this space, um, you know, down the line at some point, you presumably think about like how you might use them to model data. What are some ways that you wind up, uh, you know, sort of actually connecting to data with these objects? So um, the main two ways of connecting these objects to data are through clustering and feature selection, which means that you can use them to um, generalize any of your favorite clustering algorithms, any of your favorite feature selection algorithms. So for example, if you wanted to do something akin to factor analysis or ICA, um, where you're representing your data as a superposition of latent features, you can use a non-parametric approach to represent your data as a superposition of potentially infinite numbers of features. So at the moment, um, one of the areas that I am looking at is using the Dirichlet process, which is a infinite dimensional probability measure to cluster communications in networks. So in a network, uh, we have potentially infinitely many people, or at least an unbounded number of people. We've no way of knowing how many potential users of um, Twitter or Facebook there are out there. I guess we, technically we, we have we enough about... We do know how many people are on Twitter. <laughs> well, we know, but we don't know how many people next year will be on Twitter. <laughs> what I'm saying is there might be an unbounded number. <laughs> it makes sense to say, okay, if we see a new communication... Odds are it's between people who have communicated before in this network, but there's an also a possibility that it's to someone who's only just set up their email network, um, email uh, address, or someone who we haven't been tracking and suddenly comes to our attention because, um, for example, Ryan has only just sent an email to his new graduate student who wasn't yet on the radar. So by having a non-parametric clustering algorithm, we can allow this sort of out-of-sample prediction um, and on-the-fly incorporation of new uh, nodes into a network. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, that seems like a really important thing to recognize that perhaps we haven't seen all of the data that may be available. And, it, you know, it's, it's very appealing to sort of always maintain the hypothesis that we'll see some, something completely new. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so you took this interesting detour with um, 
think, you know, think about particle physics. And you, you mentioned a sort of uh, a yearning for uh, for doing sort of fundamental pure science that I bet hasn't gone away. One of the things that's really fun about doing methodological work is is the um, opportunity to uh, to get back to contribute to to sort of different sort of uh, fundamental science. Have you had any opportunities at, at, at University of Texas or beyond to, actually, to do that? I actually have. I've gone back even further to my roots, to my um, undergraduate engineering days, where, as I mentioned earlier, none of my bridges stayed up, my soldering was terrible. But now as a statistician, other people can do the um, <laughs> things that involve actual handwork. So I've got a couple of collaborations with the civil engineering department at UT um, who are investigating uh, ways of characterizing predicting road quality. So Texas is a very large state, which means we have a lot of roads. And unfortunately, not all of our roads are in the uh, pristine condition that one would hope. Department of Roads, that's not the technical term, but the technical term is blank. I'm the Department of Public on. Safety, I think. In Texas. Um, possibly. Uh, goes out, measures every um, couple of hundred of yards, tons of metrics that uh, tell us the quality of the road, how pleasing it is to drive along this road. But it's very time consuming. It takes an awful lot of uh, person hours to collect all this data. So this is something that we're hoping using um, statistical models will help with to help um, infer a lot of these uh, properties rather than having to actually measure them every year, every couple of hundred yards. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds like it would save the state millions of dollars in the end. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, and hopefully they can spend those millions of dollars in improving the uh, potholes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> put, it, put the money somewhere else. So I have sort of a left turn for you. Um, I know that you are in roller derby. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How's the, how's the season been going? Um, these, the season is now over and... Uh, my team, unfortunately, uh, made it to our league's championships and then lost. Oh, so, no. A little so bit close. of a sore spot. Oh. Um, Do you have an awesome nickname? So my roller derby name is Angela Momentum. Uh, a pun on Angular Momentum. Again, nice. harking back to my uh, engineering and physics days. Sinead Williamson of the University of Texas at Austin. She's just amazing. Yeah, she's really fantastic. And not only do I love her work, but I love that she's like this roller derby badass. So cool. So cool. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Join us next time. 